If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. Most of you will probably already be there. John chapter 1. When you think of the phrase, have faith, what comes to mind? What comes to mind when you think of just believe? When someone comes up to you and says, just have faith, or just believe, what's the first thing you think of? You see, a lot of people throw those phrases out in our nation. They're constantly thrown out off the cuff. And what tends to happen is we don't take the time to process what exactly someone's telling us or asking us to do. One of the difficulties when it comes to using that kind of terminology is the faith that we're describing, is it biblical or is it just perchance hoping something happens? When most people say just believe and have faith, they are literally trying to encourage us to look beyond the situation, right? Usually those phrases come up when things are hard. Well, I would say that during this time, it's more than just having faith, it's making sure you have the right faith. It's making sure you have biblical faith. It's making sure that you have saving faith. In John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at three specific things here in the text. And it'll seem a little bit out of order, but I, I've done it that way for a reason. Number one, we're going to be looking at the divinity, verses 1 through 5, and this is the word that we're talking about. Number two, the humanity, verses 14 through 18. And number three, the response. What's our response to all this? Verses 9 through 13. So starting off with number one, the divinity, verses 1 through 5. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You see, the writer of the book of John, it's very clear that it's John himself, as we see a few three things throughout this book that let us know that this is John, the disciple of Jesus Christ. Number one, he's actually mentioned as the disciple who Jesus loved in John chapter 20, verses 2 through 10. Number two, we, he was also the one in the upper room in Mark 14, 17, as well as Luke 22, 14. And we also see that he claimed to have seen Christ in his glory. You see that in verse 14 here in John chapter 1. We'll see that a little bit later. Most scholars actually believe that John wrote this later on in his life to some actually stating that he wrote it as an old man in 95 AD, many years after Jesus' bodily resurrection and ascension into glory. John is very different from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called that because they come from a very common view. Matthew's gospel, is interesting, starts off with the genealogy, then moves on to a narrative surrounding the infancy of Christ. Mark's gospel takes readers immediately into the public ministry of Jesus. And Luke's gospel provides unique details of the birth of John the Baptist as well as Christ before the genealogy is actually mentioned. John, however, starts off with the first words, in the beginning, which takes readers back to the start of everything. Where else do you find that phrase? In the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. The key word that's used throughout the book is the word believe, pistuo, which is a verb appearing 98 times, 
whereas pistis, which is the noun form of the word, is not mentioned once. So John is emphasizing an active faith rather than a mental assent, and it's important to understand that. We will deal with more, some, more of this a little bit later on here, but we're going to look at specific things here in the first five verses. The first part we're going to look at here is the eternal word was with God, who is God. Look at the first part here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Even before there was such a thing that we call time in eternity past, when nothing existed, the Word existed. And that Word is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who had not yet taken on human flesh. And it's important to make that distinction. We'll talk about that a little bit later. As one author points out, John is writing about a new beginning, a new creation, And he uses words that recall the first creation. He soon goes on to use other words that are important in Genesis chapter 1, such as life in verse 4, light also in verse 4, and darkness in verse 5. Genesis 1 describes God's first creation. John's theme is God's new creation. Like the first, the second is not carried out by some subordinate being. It is brought about through the agency of the Logos, the very word of God. In fact, the, the Greeks used the word logos to describe the reason or mind of God. To the Hebrew, the word of God was the self-assertion of a divine personality. To the Greek, the formula denoted the rational mind that ruled the universe. So most of us, when it comes to believe, and this is really going to play a role in this, when we think of the word believe or faith, we tend to think of something that I just placed into my head and I believe a certain fact. To the Jewish mindset, it was active. You would not be known as somebody that was a believer or a follower of God if you did not do so in practice. One of the reasons why a lot of Christianity gets faith wrong is because we've assumed the Western perspective on this, to where we've assumed that if I just believe a certain fact about Jesus being the Son of God and that He died and rose again, that is enough for saving faith. And I would argue as we look at the text later on that there's more to it than that. Because here's the truth. A lot of us believe certain facts about a lot of things, but in practice, we don't really believe them. Let me give you a for instance, right? You, a lot of people say they trust the government until the government comes to take away something from them. Okay? Now, most of us will probably say, well, I don't trust the government. That's not really an appropriate statement for me. But the reality is there are different things that we say we believe or we trust But when we put that to the test, we actually don't believe or trust that as much as we say that we do. You see, faith, if it was to be proactive, has to take action. It has to take action. It can't just stand still and say, I believe this without acting on that. Faith and obedience are tied together. It's all throughout Scripture. When Abraham had faith, he obeyed. When when Abraham had faith, he did certain things. And that's the same way it is with us. But we ultimately are going to go back to where exactly does this faith come from? Is it something that's generated inside of us, or is it something outside of us that God implants in us? To the, to the second point here in the text, what's interesting is the word that is mentioned created all things in verse 3. What John is actually saying is that the word is not a created thing. The word was there before all of creation. The Word was there before all of creation because the Word actually created all things. The Word also gives life and light. 
Now, when we're referring to the Word, we're referring to the second person, the Trinity, who, when He takes on human flesh, is Jesus Christ. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. The Word being God imparts life into lifeless man in the beginning of creation and also imparts spiritual life to a man who, apart from Him, is spiritually dead. Just as God spoke light into the darkness in creation, so the Word now shines light to men who are in darkness. The idea here is that darkness, and we see here, the light shines in the darkness, verse 5, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's the idea that the darkness cannot take out the light. It's impossible. There's nothing that the darkness can do to overcome the light. The Word who comes in the flesh, Christ, is not battling with darkness with a possibility of losing. Listen, the battle is already won. It's already won. There's not this tension between God and Satan, and man, Satan might win. He's not going to win. It's impossible. It might seem like the battle's being won by the other side right now, believer, but I promise you, at the end, when you look at the rest of Scripture and you get to Revelation, it's a very simple statement, God wins. See, this is the part that we need to be assured of as believers sometimes. Because you know what what tends to happen to a lot of us? We say in one sense, I believe God is in control, but then we live as if Satan has more control than he does. You can't believe both of those at the same time and live consistently as a believer. That's one of the reasons why I think we emotionally are all over the place when it comes to our application of Scripture. One day we feel like we're connected with God, right? And the next day, oh my goodness, I feel so far. Why is that? Why is that? Because we're trusting our feelings to override what God's Word says. If you trust your feelings over what God's Word says, then you're going to have an inconsistent walk. You see, light in, the, in, in Scripture represents salvation and revelation. Darkness represents death and ignorance. So we're speaking of those two terms. You've got to remember, one is talking about salvation and revelation. The other one is death and ignorance, separation. So the second point we're going to look at here is the humanity, verses 14 through 18. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace." For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. It's important to note here that the Word became flesh, which means that the Word was divine but took on human flesh while at the same time keeping divinity. The Word that we're referring to is Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. When Jesus took on human flesh, He didn't stop being God. The Son took on human flesh and became a baby, came as a baby who we know as Jesus Christ. He did not cease to be a divine. It's important to point out that when you read the beginning of the chapter, this is important, the word when referring to the divinity does not mention Jesus Christ, believer, because His divinity never had a beginning. You need to understand there's a huge thing that a lot of people get wrong about Christ. 
They say that the first part of the chapter is referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took on human flesh. That's when he became Jesus Christ. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, always eternally existed with the Father. His humanity, sure, began, had a beginning. His divinity never did. The Word became flesh. Jesus had a beginning as a human being, but no beginning as a divine God. Else we would have conflicts with verses that say that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You can't send someone who has not existed. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. If anything like this very great mystery can be found in human affairs, the most apposite parallel seems to be that of a man whom we see to consist of two substances. Yet neither is so mingled with the other as not to retain its own distinctive nature. For the soul is not the body, and the body is not the soul. Therefore, some things are said exclusively of the soul that can in no wise apply to the body. And the body, again, that in no way fits the soul. Of the whole man that cannot refer, except inappropriately, to either soul or body separately. Finally, the characteristics of the mind are sometimes transferred to the body, and those of the body to the soul. Yet he who consists of these parts is one man, not many. Such expressions signify both that there is one person in man composed of two elements joined together, and that there are two diverse underlying natures that make up this person. I found his explanation much better than most people's attempt to describe the hypostatic union of Christ. Where it says here that he dwelt, think of the connection of the tabernacle. He dwelt among us, and God's dwelling among His people, Israel. There are direct connections that you can see to the Old Testament throughout what John is building here. Monogenes, literally one kind, meaning unique or only. Jesus is eternal and of the same essence as the Father, yet uncreated. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. This statement is filled with such deep truth that Christ had both grace and truth abound in Him. Apart from the light that He gives, one cannot understand grace or truth properly. They can read this passage even, assume to know what it means, but apart from spiritual light and life, they cannot understand it. As Scripture says later on, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Oh, they can read the same text you and I read, but they won't have the same conclusion. Both are needed, grace and truth, as found in Christ. In fact, your definition of grace and truth needs to be His definition, or else you're going to make up your own. He demonstrated both of these perfectly. You and I tend to lean heavier on one or the other. We're going to talk about this here. In, in one of these categories, you're going to be heavier on one side than the other. We, we have a proclivity to be more gracious or more truthful, and very few of us have a good balance of both. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. It's not grace versus truth, right? It's 100% of both that Jesus exhibited perfectly. So let's break this down a little bit. If you're a gracious person, you may tend to have these qualities, so I'm just going to throw these out there, right? You may be very pleasant to be around. People just want to be around you. You know, so-and-so, man, I just love spending time with them. They're just gracious. They're so easy to be, get along with. They're so kind. They care. If you're a gracious person, 
you also may not make any demands. So you allow others sometimes to walk all over you. Don't worry, we're going to get to the truthful folks. They have some negatives as well when, when it's out of order. It's out of balance. We're, we'll get there. If you're gracious, you don't normally offend people. You care too much to think of what they will think of you. In fact, most people aren't offended by you because you never offend them. So you pat them on the back, they pat you on the back. It's a never-ending process sometimes. You tolerate things you shouldn't as a gracious person. And you think sometimes it's godly. Sin in someone else's life, I just don't want to tell them they're wrong because I really don't want to confront this. Because after all, I'm a sinner. Who am I to judge? You know, it's the, the, the infamous phrase everybody throws out there. Sometimes someone's terrible words towards you, spoken out of spite, you never respond to at all. And you let that fester into bitterness because you want to be gracious to others without actually telling them that they hurt you. And sometimes a standard that others have is different from what you personally hold to, but you can't say anything about it. You're actually, as a gracious person, you're, no, you're known as someone that's very nice. Most people think you rarely sin because you never mention anything that's controversial. Like, rarely do you mention anything that's controversial. Like, your Facebook is super clean. Like, you'll never stand up for anything because you don't want to be known as that person. It's not necessarily wrong in some ways, but that's why it's important to have a balance. What about a truthful person, okay? If you're a truthful person, you might tend to have these qualities. Hey, church, we know people in different categories here, okay? Which one is stronger probably for you is might maybe different than your spouse. God puts you together for a reason, okay? I'm just throwing that out there, okay? Your spouse will probably have a tendency in one direction that you don't, okay? So here we go. If you're a truthful person, you may tend to have one of these qualities. You may tell it the way it is. Rough around the edges, but you stick to the facts, right? You don't care how it comes across. They just need to be told the truth. Frankly, some people think you're a jerk when you do it. But you've got to tell them the truth. You don't mince words. If you're a truthful person, you make sure others know where you stand on something at the expense sometimes of hearing others out. If you're a truthful person, you offend others quite easily. In fact, you're not as concerned about the delivery because they need to know the truth. Listen, 2 plus 2 equals 4. I don't care how you get there, it's true, okay? If it's, if it's 5, you're wrong. Don't even debate this with me. But that, that's how you come across. In fact, many times those that are truthful are known as mean to society. Because you're telling it like it is doesn't always earn you brownie points from doing so. Another one is, you speak out about things that are wrong because you care at the expense of alienating those that disagree. Telling others where they hurt you without giving them the same understanding sometimes. At times you push a black and white approach where the issue may actually be gray, like music taste, opinions of how church should be run. You have a strong opinion and you need to let others know. So the importance here, believer, is that they're equally important. If you're a person that tends to be more gracious and you're afraid to say anything, 
learn to balance out with truth. If you're a person that goes, well, look, I don't care about people's feelings. I'm just going to tell them like it is. Balance that out with some grace because Jesus exemplified both. Because you are truthful doesn't make you a better person if you're lacking grace, believer. Okay? Just those of us that are, you know, heavier on the truth, we're like, well, we're about truth. We're standing for what's right. Yeah, but there's a right approach and a wrong approach. And I think some people miss that, that are leaning heavily towards being truthful. Neither does giving everyone a pass make you any better than not saying the things that need to be said. Look, if you're a naturally gracious person, sometimes you need to confront some things, and you need to be willing to do so, and not hide behind, well, I don't want anybody confronting me on anything. Imagine if nobody ever talked to one another when things had to get done in a church or an organization or anything, and we never, ever rubbed each other the wrong way. Imagine the kind of relationship we'd actually have. A lot of things wouldn't get done. Why? Because we wouldn't really speak openly what we need to get done. But the things that we speak openly that need to be done, they need to be done in a gracious fashion. And sometimes it doesn't come out that way. In our church, most of us can usually tell which one is stronger in which quality. If you were to ask people, hey, what do you think of this person? Are they stronger in their and being truthful or gracious? Well, I think they're gracious. They never have anything to say about anybody. Nobody thinks they sin. So, okay, that's their strong point. What about truthful? Oh, man, they're always talking about what I'm doing wrong. They're always pointing it out. Like, it's almost like they never stop doing that. So, it's important to understand. We know that there are differences in this church. We know that you may have a tendency in one area that another person may have stronger in another. If people are constantly pointing out something that we've said we tend to think that they're more truthful when they want to tell us directly what's going on. But sometimes we need to be gracious and be patient. Let, let, me, let me give you a balance here, and we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus and how he, he exemplified this perfectly. When God deals with us, believer, okay, does he confront us? Does he confront us right away? Not always. Sometimes we have this thing called Long-suffering, that's a, that's a big qualifier of who Jesus is, who God is. He's long-suffering and patient. Those of us that are truthful, we tend to not be so that way. We want to deal with it now. Like, let's get this over with. I don't want to deal with this three days from now. Let's go now. And then if you're gracious, like, well, you know, we'll deal with it another day and another day and another day, and it never comes. You need to find the right balance. That's why some of you, and I've said this before, you don't find the right balance because sometimes one spouse is typically the type that wants to deal with it that day, and another spouse is like, well, I'm not ready today. So guess what happens if you either wait too long or deal with it that day? Both get hurt. You have to find the happy medium. You have to find the balance between your spouse and what you tend to lean towards. Jesus perfectly exemplified this. As, as Scripture says in Proverbs, a word fitly spoken meaning you have to have the right timing. Some of us, we need to actually do it and say something. Some of us need to have better timing when we say it. You're not better than the person struggling with the other side of the same coin. These qualities are both exemplified in Christ perfectly, grace and truth. And what do we mean by grace? Grace ultimately is unmerited favor. Truth, Jesus defines that. That's what Scripture is. God's Word is truth. Truth is not what you think it is. Truth is what God says it is. And sometimes our opinions turn into truth. They're not really truth. God's Word is. 
Just remember this truth when dealing with somebody in the body of faith. And maybe accept the help of those that are stronger with the other part of this equation. So if you know somebody that's more gracious, learn from them. If you're a person that's like, man, I don't care. I'm just, I'm just going to tell people like it is. Well, look, don't be the proverbial fool that speaks everything that's on their mind. That's not good either. Okay? On the other side of the equation, if you're someone like, I don't really speak out against anything. I just don't want to upset anybody. Talk to somebody that does. This is where the, the body helps one another. God's gifted us differently. Ultimately, Jesus has the perfect, perfect balance of both of these. We don't. Gracious people want to be loved. Truthful people want to be right. Just remember that. Gracious people, they want to be loved. Truthful people, they want to be right. So when you're dealing with somebody that's kind of on the other side of this equation, understand that when you're talking to them. It might give you a better connection. You need both, just as Christ had them perfectly balanced. How do we see that? Well, Jesus was actually gracious to sinners that struggled, but was not afraid to tell the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He was gracious, but still told her the truth. Don't go sin. Jesus graciously gave up his life, but demands that we give up our lives for the gospel. Jesus willingly gave of himself for you and me, but he demands from us full surrender. Jesus graciously wept over Jerusalem, but also declared judgment because that was coming and that was the truth. You need to have both perfectly balanced. Are you always going to do it? Of course not. Are you going to lean stronger on one than the other? Yes. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can balance these out. And be willing to hear the Holy Spirit and rather than your opinions and your thoughts on this. So what's our response to all of these truths regarding the Word in Jesus Christ coming in human flesh? The response is found in verses 9 through 13. Look what it says. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Israel as a nation, by the way, those that are religious Pharisees were really the representatives of that, that day, they rejected the light that was given to them when Jesus came to this earth. The God who took on human form, created all things, came to rescue sinful man, was rejected by the nation he had chosen. through which to bring salvation to the rest of the world. Christ still shines as a true light, which gives light to everyone in this world. But as we see later in the book of John, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Everyone on this earth is aware of God's existence. Everyone. But it takes a spiritual new birth to see the value of Christ. Let me repeat that. Everyone on this earth is aware of God's existence, but it takes a spiritual new birth to see the value of Christ. If you've received Christ, as this text says, then you may not be aware of what actually happened behind the scenes that enabled this new birth, which gave us the privilege to be the children of God. You might say, well, I believe, so I must be born again. But let's text, let the text actually speak for itself here. Let's not read into the text. Let's draw from the text. Some things 
that did not make this new birth happen? Well, the first one we see here is in verse 13, who were born not of blood. This is talking about those that received Christ. You are not born into this family of God by way of being a descendant in a bloodline, if you will. You're not automatically a child of God because others were children of God before you. That's not the case as we see even the Jewish people assumed when Jesus came to the scene because Abraham was their father, they had been children of God. And Jesus is saying, no, you're blinded. Because this new birth has nothing to do with your bloodline. Remember, believer, another thing that's important, and this is missed by a lot of people theologically. In Romans, when Paul talks about the Gentiles and the Jewish, Jewish uh, remnant, out of the Jewish community, there were those that were part of the remnant and those that were outside of the remnant. There has always been a remnant from the beginning of time. So regardless of whether or not somebody declares that they're a child of God, being part of the remnant means that that person finds value in Christ. Finds value in Christ, not a generic, I have a bloodline that connects me to this. This is why it's important that we have our faith become our own, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that means here in a moment. You can't base your faith based on the fact that you were taken to church. You just can't do that. Or that your parents were saved. Or that so-and-so that you know is a believer. It's not passed down generationally like that. Number two, not of the will of the flesh. There is nothing you can do to earn spiritual birth or this right to be a child of God. You can try as much as you want to do all the spiritual disciplines, read your Bible, pray, all these things, and they will not bring you spiritual birth. You can't will your way into this family of God. Remember, later on, John actually expounds a little bit more on this, and he says, that which is of the flesh is flesh, and that which is of the spirit is spirit. You can't determine your way in. Number three, yes, this is in the Bible. I don't know if some of you might be reading this the first time and seeing, wow, this is really in the Bible. Yeah, it is. Nor of the will of man. It's almost as if John wants to emphasize you can't do anything about this spiritual new birth. This is not something that a parent can will for their children. I can't say, hey, you know what? I want my son to be a child of God, so I'm going to will that. You can't do that. We know that it's not something passed through a bloodline, but it's also not something that you can determine for your children. You can't determine it for others. You can't determine, I can't as a pastor determine this upon the whole congregation. This is something that is done by the Spirit of God. In fact, if you read through the Bible, this may sadden and hurt you, but you need to understand this as reality, believer. Many great men of God did not have regenerate children. David, for example. Most of his offspring were not followers of God. Samuel, his sons. Abraham. You and I have to understand, how does this actually work? 
So how, how do I know that the faith that I have is genuine, it's real? Because what it says here is it's of God. We believe because God has given us new life by the Spirit. It's God working in us. He starts it. He finishes it. So what should our response be? Here's what we should be doing. And I think this is something that's lacking in the church. I got convicted over this when I went through this text again this week. We pray fervently for God to grant repentance to those around us. We pray for our children. We pray for our grandchildren, our neighbors, our coworkers, our government officials, because He gives them life. And when He gives them life, they see Christ for who He is, as their treasure. That's more valuable than anything you can be given by anyone on this earth. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we pray for all people. As the ESV says this, says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Let me, let me pause for a second. All people. Not just for people you like. Not just for people that are close to you. All people. Why? For kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Listen, believer, God desires all people to be saved. I can't get around that in the text. He desires not just the blue-collar workers, the stay-at-home moms. He wants entrepreneurs, politicians, governors, medical workers, criminals on death row, all people around the world from every tribe and nation to be saved and to know Christ as their treasure. Can I commend you to look up Spurgeon's sermon on this called Salvation by Knowing the Truth? Salvation by Knowing the Truth. He, he deals with this text in greater length than I am here. Um, and he just does a wonderful job of going, look, I'm just going to let the text speak for itself. I'm going to desire the things that God desires. In fact, he's a man that didn't care too much about politics like we do. He cared more for the souls of men and the lost. So in conclusion... Let's ask this question. What affirms your faith in Christ? What affirms that you are a child of God? Is it because you were born to Christian parents? That can't be, else we'd fall into the same trap that Israel did during Jesus' time. Is it because you've done some Christian things, like you read your Bible this week, you said a prayer, you went to church here, you gave some money, whatever it is? Is it because of that? Well, if that were the case, there's a lot of people that outgive Christians. Does that qualify them then? Is it because someone else told you you were born again? Like your parents, your teacher, your pastor, your spouse. Is that where your assurance or affirmation of faith comes from? 
Or is it because you find Christ precious and valuable and worth giving your life for? You didn't just find interest in him years ago because you felt bad about something. You find him as valuable today. Let me pause for a second. Parents, what your children need from you is not a false assurance. Your children need to know that you're praying for them and asking the Father to work. Because as we said, when the Word came, He brought light and life. What your children don't need is for you to tell them. Because ultimately, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit tells all of us. Scripture clearly tells us that His Spirit bears with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's the greatest assurance you and I can have. Not for someone to come alongside and go, remember this date, you prayed a prayer. But for someone to go, the Holy Spirit's working your life. I can see it visibly. And you know that because you know what? You know 1 John where it says, if we keep His commandments, we know that we love Him. Your assurance is going to come from your obedience to Scripture. Your affirmation will come from the Holy Spirit who works through the Word. If it comes outside of that, hopefully it's connected to that directly. If a person affirms someone's salvation apart from the Word of God, then that's not a proper affirmation of Scripture. Saving faith is something that is brought about by the Holy Spirit who uses the Word of God. Hearing comes by faith, right? By the Word of God. Scripture clearly tells us that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. That church is the ultimate affirmation. Let's pray.